0: So, right on schedule, this afternoon we turn to the third of the four greats, Maha Mutita. And I would call it Empathetic Joy, except it's not. Mutita, as I mentioned earlier, does simply mean joy, delight. In the context of the four measurables, it clearly has an empathetic quality to it, so it's often called sympathetic joy. Empathetic, I think it's a bit closer, but they're both fine. But now, as we know, in this, in this series, and I'm starting from great compassion, and then great Mahamaitri, great loving-kindness, and then great joy, and we will culminate, of course, tomorrow with the great equanimity. Each of these starts out with a question, which is then really for reflection. It's, it's not a self-answering question. It's actually each one is a very deep question, and then it moves from there to an aspiration, from the aspiration to an intention, and then culminating then in a supplication that one can carry through with the intention. Right. So the the format's the same for each of the four, but the content's different, and it's again it's like different facets of a single diamond. But the the liturgy here, the phrasing, I think it, it, for this one is quite exceptionally rich and precise. Uh, the earlier ones m- may, you know, may all beings find happiness and the cause of happiness. Very straightforward. This one is subtle. And so in Tibetan that goes, dunga It's longer. And the translation for that, which again I sent to Sangye and Claudio yesterday, so it should be up soon, for all four of these, so you can see it in English. Uh, but the English translation here is, why couldn't, All sentient beings, never be parted from sublime happiness, free of suffering. So put in a lot, that was a short phrase, but a lot was put in there. So the why couldn't, that's the kind of the question that we've encountered before. But never be parted from, mindelna, mindel means never be parted, never separated from. It's an interesting phrase. Not, why couldn't they achieve it, or realize it, or one day, you know, it, why not? But, may, why couldn't they never be parted from? And then what type of deva, deva is sukha, so well-being, or happiness, uh, but it's dhambe deva, sat sukha, sat sukha. And the dhamba has a quality of sacred, so sacred well-being, or sublime is also very good. In some contexts it means ultimate, ultimate. Dundam demba. Dundam demba. Uh, so sublime is very nice, sacred is also true, it's also ultimate. So why couldn't all sentient beings never be parted from, let's say, sublime, sat, sukha, sublime happiness. And then dunga mepa means devoid of, empty of, not without any, without any suffering. But the phrasing is interesting, isn't it? Never be parted from we generally think of being parted from something that we've actually been with at some point, right? I don't think of never being parted from Bolivia. I've never been there. Once I've been there, I might wish, oh, may I never be parted? If I really felt at home there, I may, might never want to be live, might never want to leave. But never be parted from suggests already some familiarity, right? And so how might we understand that? Some sublime, dimension of well-being that is devoid of happiness and then of course we can envision well what this means is you know, may, we, may each one you know, uh, realize ultimate reality and never be parted from the bliss let's say of direct realization of emptiness There's, when you have a direct realization of emptiness as in the case of an Arya Bodhisattva or let's say a Vidyadatta a Vidyadatta with direct unmediated realization of pristine awareness, Rigpa now that's immutable bliss that's the real thing, okay? This is way beyond the bliss of the mere substrate consciousness, which is conditioned within time and so forth. Now, the, the bliss of Rigpa is the immutable bliss. Or the, for the people with Gulukpa background, the bliss of the innate, innate mind of uh, Kadasa. Karasar. Karasar. So, innate mind. But what's it called in English? Clear mind. Clear light. Yeah, yeah. In, innate mind of clear light. Thank you. I just forget the English. Can't find it. So, the innate mind of clear light, yeah. And so the innate mind of clear light is imbued with immutable bliss, another dimension of bliss, which is then is timeless. Because when it says immutable, it doesn't mean it just stop moving. It just means it's just beyond the whole domain of change. Well, I think you, you probably see where I'm going. And that is, in our presence for each of us, any one of us here right now, there are these multiple dimensions of our existence. And the surface is what we see, just that. Oh, that's what Kauldeo looks like. That's what Gacche looks like. That's the surface, surface. That could be a painting. It could be a holographic image. It's so superficial, right? But of course, then there's the interiority of each person, and that's where their mind is, their experiences as as they're having right now. And then if we if we go deeper to that, deeper than that, probing into the depths of mind, because I'm passionately committed to understanding mind then, of course, we come to the substrate consciousness. And that's already there. That's not something you achieve one day. That's already there. That's kind of like underground water. But it's there. And you can reveal it or not reveal it, but it's there either way. It's obscured by five obscurations. But then if you cut through that, then, of course, what's also already there is rupa, And so that's where you are right now. Rupa is there. Substrate consciousness there. Your mind is there. Body is there. But they're all there at all times, right? So you never can be parted from your substrate consciousness. You can never be parted from Rigpa. The thing you most can't be parted from is Rigpa. You will be parted from the body, that's for sure. And frankly, you'll be parted from your mind because your mind is arising independent upon the body. Lose the body, bye-bye mind, right? And the substrate consciousness, well, when you achieve enlightenment, you don't have one anymore. So you can be parted from your substrate consciousness. It's conditioned. It's conditioned samsaric mind. So the only part of you from which you can never, ever, ever, ever be parted is Rigpa. But, and Rigpa is of the very nature of knowing, so Rigpa can't be Marikba. Rigpa can't be unknowing. Because then it would be Marikba and not Rigpa. It would be Avidya and not Vidya. So there's a dimension of you right now that is knowing. And it is the knowing on that dimension. Because if it were not knowing, then it would be Avidya, and then it wouldn't be pristine consciousness. It would be pristine unawareness. Which doesn't make any sense. So, the issue then then is this conscious awareness. You remember that, sheer rik, rik, and that is conscious awareness. That is not only aware, but you, from our perspective, from where you live, where each of us live, we are consciously aware of our rikpa. We've identified rikpa. We're viewing reality from rikpa, and in that, there is a dimension of well-being or happiness that is utterly devoid of, of suffering. and In fact, it's never, there's never been suffering there. It's never been afflicted. It's never been contaminated. It's never... It's, all it is. it's timeless. And that's already there. So the point of never being parted from is the rigpa is already there. Immutable bliss is there someplace. But what is not manifest is our conscious awareness of that rigpa and therefore the conscious awareness of this immutable dimension of bliss. And so the the question is, since every single sentient being is imbued with rikpa, imbued with Buddha nature, and that's the deepest ground of each one, and it's of the very nature of bliss, sublime, sacred, one could say divine, ultimate bliss that is by nature devoid devoid of suffering. Since that's already there, then why couldn't, since it's already there, it's kind of like an inheritance you already have. It's not something purchase you make later on. It's something you're born with. right? Since it's there, then why couldn't, since every sentient being is imbued with this, why couldn't each one never be parted from the conscious experience of this sublime well-being, devoid of emptiness, that is rooted in the one being and not something to be achieved later on. And if achieved later on, maybe lost later on. So that's the question. Now when we just take a, a brief step back, I don't want to linger here a lot, we have some interesting text to get to, but when, it, when we just take one step back to the loving kindness practice, and why couldn't all sentient beings find happiness in the causes of happiness or be endowed with, in that context, as in the immeasurable loving kindness, I think it's very important to include the hedonic. Why couldn't all sentient beings Find the hedonic well being they need to support them in their practice, having enough to eat, clothing, shelter, and so forth. Why couldn't? So I think loving kindness really must include. We mustn't be snooty, like pompous, or looking down on hedonia, like that's for non-Dharma practitioners or, you know, that's for lower people. No. Buddha also ate on a regular basis, you know. The greatest beings that ate, you know, they did ordinary things. They had clothing, they had shelter. And so, in my sense, my interpretation, but I don't think it's very wild. Interpretation is the, the loving kindness really must include where we live, the hedonia, enough. And then, of course, it goes beyond that to the eudaimonia, genuine well being. Right? But here it comes to this, this joy, this third one, and he's just focusing in on the deepest. Never be parted from sublime happiness that is devoid by its very nature, devoid of transcending suffering. And why couldn't we never be parted from that? So there's the question. And then moving right on, may we never be parted. So may we never be parted from that. Ha. Which of course, this has to be piggybacking on loving-kindness practice. Right? Because if the loving-kindness practice is aspiring for and resolving to enact all sentient beings fighting both hedonia and eudaimonia, that means they've tapped into it. If, if, you know this, If this aspiration is coming to fruition, the Hidoni is there, and on top of that is the Idomaniya. And then the next one, this Mudita is saying, you know that top level? May we never be separated. Maybe we not just dip into it, so not have just a glimpse of Rigpa, a glimpse of Satori, a glimpse of Dhammadatu, Dhammakaya. Good to get a glimpse. But then may we never be parted from. That's where you need this underlying foundation. If you ask, why couldn't we never be separated? Well, we could if we had Shamada and Vipassana supporting it, sustaining it, with bodhicitta, then it could be sustained. There would be no need to ever part from it. So I really look upon this as kind of the, the bliss of rikpa, looking at that level, just my interpretation, but the looking at the level of Vidyadatta, who has gained direct, unmediated realization, dwells in rikpa as a current, a flow. And that's the Vidyadatta's job. Just The job is no job, it's non-meditation. Now, don't activate your samsaric mind to try to achieve something. Just remain flowing in that ongoing continuum of resting in rikpa and observing all phenomena, every phenomenon, the whole bandwidth of samsara and nirvana and the pure realms, all of these are arising from moment to moment as pure, evenly pure, taknyam, evenly pure displays, effulgences, creative expressions of rikpa. And you are absolutely in the center of your mind. And your mandala stretches out through all of space, all of time. Your mandala is the whole universe, and you're seeing—you're just now just viewing reality. This is where you have open presence in rikpa. This is where there's just being open, your vidita, right? And then you just slip along the stream, you know, to perfect awakening. But my interpretation, eh, for what it's worth, is that this mudita is really focusing on that level, on that level vidita and having it become become maybe May we never be parted from that bliss, which is free of suffering. Never be parted from. And just slip right down the stream to the fourth of the greats, which is then some very big equanimity coming. (laughs) Not the ordinary kind. Supercharged. All that's all. So let's hop right to it. Please find a comfortable position. This time, I invite you to joyfully release your mind, slip into the continuum of this meditation with the delight of letting awareness come to rest in its own place, holding its own ground. It is there that you will find this sublime bliss, sublime happiness, free of suffering. We know where to look, we know where to rest, and we can do it today. So with this sense of satisfaction, this sense, the joyful sense of, of meaning, the value of such practice, settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural state. In the stage of generation practices, realizing the emptiness of inherent nature of all that we experience, as well as the one who experiences, we dissolve this constructed reality into emptiness, and out of emptiness, out of this non-duality of Dharmakaya and Dharmadhatu, this unity of primordial consciousness, in the absolute space of inanimate, out of this ultimate domain. By the power of imagination we bring forth, we evoke an imaginal reality of the mandala, the deities, ourselves as a deity. Knowing full well we, we are generating this with the mind, to imagine something that is already true, but temporarily veiled from sight, due to the obscurations of our own minds. So in a similar fashion right now, I invite you then to use your imagination to venture into this realm of possibility, which from another's perspective is already actual. But envision. Envision your own sublime well-being, Sublime bliss, ultimate bliss, sacred bliss, primordially free of suffering. And imagine it, your best approximation. You are a child of all the Buddhas, and this is your inheritance, this is your Buddha nature. Manifest, unveiled. Envision such well-being. arouse then the first question, and that is why couldn't all sentient beings, each one being imbued with, or finding at their very core this dimension of awareness and this dimension of bliss, why couldn't all sentient beings never be parted from this sublime bliss free of suffering? you attend to all those around you the world of such beings around you with so many struggles so much restlessness ill at ease suffering and conflict so much confusion and delusion craving and hostility yet each one imbued with Buddha nature why couldn't each one never be parted from, from such sublime well-being devoid of suffering The answer may come that given the appropriate causes and conditions, the environment, the teacher, the practices, there's no reason why each one, given enough time, could consciously experience such well-being and then dwell in that well-being without ever being parted from it. There's no reason. They just need to meet the teacher, the teachings, the conducive circumstances, inward and outward. They could, and if they could, then this leads to the aspiration. Mintel, what is your cheek? May we never be parted from. May we never be separated from. Such sublime well-being. As you arouse this aspiration, then, from your own Buddha-nature, symbolizes an orb of light at your heart. Breathe out, breathe out, and with every breath. Breathe out this aspiration, breathe out this light for every sentient being, for each one. May you never be parted from such sublime bliss, free of suffering. Recall what all sentient beings means. All those who come to mind. As you breathe out, imagine these rays of light striking each sentient being and imagine each one finding, realising, consciously experiencing such well-being. Becoming a Vidyadada, dwelling in Rigpa, Aspiration comes intention. I shall make it so. I shall enable this to happen that each one, everyone may never be freed, parted from such well-being. in taking the bodhisattva precept as you attend to this world of sentient beings with this resolve you are making a promise to each one every being in your mandana in which you are present in its center you are the shepherd you are the helmsman you are the king, the queen and you'll guide each one to safety. In the fourth and final line of the liturgy, it reads again, May the guru and the deity grant their blessings to enable me to do so. In this context, the deity, the Jonasla, or deity, Devata. A very obvious interpretation of this is your own personal deity, that face of the Buddha, that embodiment of the Buddha. It's like your root guru, that that facet, whether it's Tara, Majjushri, Padmasambhava, Buddha, Shakyamuni, whoever it may be, the one in which you have this most heartfelt connection, this is your personal deity. So you call upon your guru, your personal deity, your yidam, or ishta devata, it's called in Sanskrit, the two being non-dual, your own guru, your root guru and your personal Deity of the same nature. And you call upon them for their blessings, to empower you, to enable you, to carry through with this resolve to its culmination. And on that note, as we've done before, with each in-breath, imagine drawing in, or simply receiving, blessings from all the gurus and all the manifestations of the enlightened ones drawing in from all sides above and below converging in upon your own being filling to the point of supersaturation with each outbreath. breathe out this light of joy and imagine every sentient being finding and never being parted from is sublime bliss free of suffering breathe in, breathe out As we come to a close, release all imaginings, aspirations, objects, all effort, and simply rest in your own awareness. For so you good scholars here, like uh, like Glenn, Medike probably knows this. Among the four blisses on the stage of completion, the fourth one is called. Medike, remember? Gotcha, you don't remember? Lenge kidewa Lengi Lenge kigawa maure. Lenge. Is it the lenge, the, the innate, inborn, or conate? kind of think it is. Could be wrong, but I think so. Conate. Lenge means you're born with it. You're born with it, that's what Kornate means, you know, you're born with it. So I think it's referring to that one. These are gawaji, the four prittis, the four blisses. And this is gawa. This is gawa. So it's the same word. So probably that dimension. The one that is you're born with it means already there, right? Not but like an inheritance, and you don't you don't know where the where the treasure trust is. It. it belongs to you, but don't know quite where it is. Oh lasso. So let's return to the text now. And I did pick up and start looking at the Tibetan, and so I have actually quite a few changes to suggest. So we're on page three here, in the all capital letters, italics, four, in the root text. Okay. So also, since seeing the real nature of the mind. So I checked that out. Real nature is a, it's a term I don't use. There's nothing wrong with it, but I don't use it. And I checked out the Tibetan, and it's dhammata. It's chuny. It's the dhammata. Dhammata is the synonym for emptiness. It's ultimate reality. And so real nature is fine, but I would call it ultimate. I would, my, my own translation is, since seeing the ultimate reality of the mind. The ultimate reality of mind. Well, that can be interpreted as emptiness, but really in Mahamudra's oxham, that's referring to rigpa. So, since seeing the ultimate reality of mind depends on collecting merit and purifying ob- obstacles or obscurations, actually is closer. Dipa. Uh, the term bachit means an obstacle, something like, you know, like a budget, like a boulder on the road. This is not that. This is dipa. Dipa means something that obscures, that veils, that conceals. So, I would prefer obscurations. Purifying obscurations, afflictive obscurations, cognitive obscurations. Since seeing the ultimate reality of the mind depends on collecting merit and purifying obscurations, you should prepare as much as possible through reciting the hundred syllable mantra a hundred thousand times and confessing your moral lapses. Okay, something was messed out, left out in the English translation, and so I would revise this slightly. You should recite, you should recite the 100 syllable mantra a hundred thousand times. And confess moral lapses is actually downfalls. Dungshak shak means disclose downfalls, like breaking of uh, breaking of vows, breaking of samayas, breaking of the precepts, Mayana precepts. You're disclosing or confessing those hundreds of times, and what was left out was and offer as many prostrations as you can. That was that wasn't didn't come through. It's in the Tibetan though. So you can add that. So and so that's four. Okay, this is just root text, we'll get on. <laughs> then make f- heartfelt pleas again and again to your root guru, who is inseparable from all the buddhas of the three times. Okay, now we go into the commentary. So the great master Shant- Shantipa, Shantipa, there's one, and then the gu- guru Sevlingba, he lived, it seems, out in Indonesia, Mahayana great Mahayana guru, whom Atisha went on an 11-month voyage to seek him out and receive pith instructions on bodhicitta it's quite something Uh, so the great so the guru Ser Lingba, and at that time Indonesia was clearly there was Mahayana Buddhism there flourishing this would be the what is it 12th century something like that and then the great and divine Joe Atisha so he's citing three and many other scholar adepts pundits siddhas of the Arya land Arya land is simply a reference to India so these, and just taking a sampling, Shantipas, Teralingba, Atisha, and then many other pundits and sittas, have distinguished or drawn a demarcation between Buddhists and non-Buddhists on the basis of going for refuge purely. So that's very straightforward. Nothing's caring about it. Those who take refuge in Buddha Dhamma, and Sangha, which means this very deep sense of trust, it does not mean a catechism. Did you get all your beliefs right? How many do I have to accept? It's a matter of trust. If the trust is there, you really entrust yourself for your liberation, for your awakening, for, your, for future rebirth for that matter, if you do in the Buddha, in the Buddhist Dharma, and the Buddhist Sangha, then you're a Buddhist. And if you don't, whatever you call yourself, you're not a Buddhist. There's no reason to claim that title. It doesn't fit. If there's no trust in the Buddha, if there's no trust in the records we have, like the Pali Canon, the Mahayana, and so forth, if there's no trust that they, are, they can be relied upon, then you're not taking refuge in Dharma. That's the only Dharma we have. And it's the Sangha who's brought this to us over the generations and generations, brought to us the Pali Canon, the great Commentaries, the Mayana Canon, and so forth. And so if you don't really believe what the Buddha said about himself, and you really don't believe that the accounts of him can be trusted, that means you also don't trust the Sangha. And so that's fine, no problem, but call yourself a Buddhist, that would be misleading. So in accord with them, in accord with this, this is the very broad consensus here. There's nothing sectarian about it. In accord with him, the exalted Sapan, and this is Sakya Pandita. It's a contraction of Sakya Pandita, one of the great patriarchs, actually the fourth of the five great patriarchs, original patriarchs of the Sakya tradition of Tibetan Buddhism. The exalted Sapan, Sakya Pandita, says, "If one does not go for refuge, one is not a Dharma practitioner." Okay, that needs to be interpreted just a little bit. Um, When we, in the Buddhist context, we say, I take refuge in the Dharma. Well, of course, that means you're taking refuge in the Buddha Dharma, not some other Dharma, like Islam or something like that. It's just this one. And so that's what he's saying here. If you don't take refuge, if one does not go for refuge in the Buddha, the Buddha Buddha Dharma and the Buddha Sangha, then you're not a Buddhist Dharma practitioner. You may be a marvelous practitioner of Christianity, practicing Christian Dharma, or etc., etc., but this is the demarcation. There's a very broad consensus there, so kind of not debated. It is n- it is necessary to make going for refuge part of one's mind stream, because as Dambasange, but again very early in Tibetan Buddhism, one of the great ones, he says as he as he wrote. And this one, it's a very I'm going to have to do I have to retranslate it, so I'm not going to read what's there. You can read what's there. Uh, it's he says three things, dedicate lo ning tang in tibetan lo can be translated as your intellect your mind dedicate your mind dedicate your heart and tang can mean chest but that doesn't make any sense here the other meaning of it when i looked into the great great big definitive tibetan tibetan dictionary it means your home so you your home 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 and hearth which is representative of your, of your possessions. For many, many people, your home is your primary possession, but it's symbolic of your possession. This is my home. This is my home. This is where I live. And so, you're dedicating your inte- your intellect, you're dedicating your heart, you're dedicating your home. So, dedicating this to the tri- Triple Gem, the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, dedicate your intellect, harm, heart, and home to the three jewels, and blessings will arise. It's not by from their own power. The, the phrase actually, it's it's. Shukle, but it means on their own, by themselves. By de- by dedicating, I mean all that you have, all that you are—your your intelligence, your body, your heart, your possessions, your home, everything. By dedicating to that, to the Dharma, just by the power, by doing so, then by themselves, blessings will arise. Blessings will arise by themselves, or people of Dhingri. This is a, a region of Tibet. He was—he wrote this for them. So you don't have to look elsewhere for them. blessings; will just come. Reality will rise up to meet you okay and according and accordingly the, the guardian or the protector Shantideva, it's called the uh, guardian or protector Gumbo gumbo which means like a protector uh, because he's protecting us from uh, falling into misery perpetuating the causes of mystery uh, so therefore called protector. it's used a lot gumbo. So accordingly, the guardian or the protector, Shantideva, the great 8th century Indian Buddhist Bodhisattva, writes in his classic, ever so frequently uh, quoted, in his classic, Gata the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, when they've aroused Bodhicitta, even for an instant, those tormented by bondage in the prison of samsara will be called children of the Sugatas and will be, I'm going to say revered, they will be revered by worldly gods and humans. So by devas and humans, saluted religion. Really, it sounds like too military to me. 10 <laughs> <"Den-hup." laughs> Buddha's coming. Stand up, <Den-hup." laughs> at ease. <laughs> so I mean, it's not bad, but it means revered or offer their prostrations. But we, we ran through that. You know, you, you'll, you'll recall perhaps that the same verse was cited in Kamashana Mucchis text. And there we translated even a wretch, even somebody who's... nyam Nyamthapa means kind of like a really pathetic person who's gotten down and out in samsara. But as soon as that person generates bodhicitta, then that person suddenly is on the throne and is revered. The, the devas, human beings, are offering prostrations. So, and as the, as the great lord, Atisha, Atisha says, and this would be in his lamp for the path to enlightenment, Bodhipada Praditam, those desiring to enter the door of the Mahayana Dharma should earnestly arouse. Okay, after trying this, also there was something really missed. It's not fortunate. It's not the fortunate waking mind. The bodhicitta is not fortunate. It is what it is. It's actually kalbar, kalpa bardu, and so is what he's saying. I ha- haven't retranslated, but it was again something was uh, it got it wrong, and that is even if it takes you as long as an eon to cultivate bodhicitta, it's worth doing. Kalpa bar kalpa bar means for as long as an eon, however long it takes you, is one of those things. If it's meaningful, then no matter how long it takes, even if it's an whole, whole eon, go for it. It's worthwhile. That's what he's actually saying. So I'm not going. I can't. I haven't taken the time yet to retranslate the verse. But should earnestly arouse bodhicitta, even for as long as an eon. He said, "Room, it's suitable. It's appropriate. It's it's worth it." to arouse bodhicitta even for an eon, this bodhicitta which, like the sun and moon, illumines, illuminates, illum- illuminates darkness and purifies torment. Okay, so something was missed there. And then we go right on. But we have that whole chapter, so now we see Khan he's just, he's, he's done doing something much much more quintessential than the more elaborate explanation given by Karmachami. So we continue. Not only is bodhicitta the gateway of the Mahayana, that is just that, that it's with the cultivation of bodhicitta, it's spontaneous is arising, that you enter the Mayana path. But as stated in the, the Vairochana Abhisam Bodhi Tantra, O Lord of Secrets, this is referring to Vajrapani, uh, the emanation, the embodiment of the power of the Buddha mind, O Lord of Secrets, the gnosis of the omniscient ones arises from a cause that is bodhicitta, Okay, the, the gnosis, this is what I translate as primordial consciousness. Gnosis, as I said before, is a good translation. So the um, the, the, the gnosis, or primordial consciousness of the Buddha, arises from a cause, namely bodhicitta. It arises from a root that is compassion. And that has to be great compassion. So we can gloss that. And it is the completion of method. I, it's the Tibetan term is tarcipa, which means culmination method is often translated as skillful means it's upaya so skillful means covers we have wisdom and skillful means prajna and upaya right and so the culmination of upaya the culmination of wisdom is the perfection of wisdom that's easy but now the culmination of upaya of skillful means well that's the gnosis of the omniscient ones it arises it as Shantideva said all the first five perfections culminate in wisdom all the skillful means of the first five perfections culminate in the primordial consciousness, the gnosis of the omniscient ones. Okay? So what I would say is the culmination of the culmination of skillful means. Bodhicitta is the essence of the Mahayana. Generally, all the supreme sources of the individual doctrines, doctrinal systems, doctrinal systems of the land of snows, so all the different schools. Uh, all of the supreme sources, their most authoritative sources of the individual doctrinal systems or traditions of the land of snows, Tibet, uh, designated four teachings. All of these are unanimous. They all speak in harmony here, in agreement. They designated four teachings as preparation for either explaining or meditating on the profound teaching. Okay, And in this context, the profound teaching is referring to Mahamudra, of course. But this is generally for, for Vajrayana practice. These four. Vajrasattva meditation is a Vajrayana practice so it's not really a preliminary practice for Sutrayana practice. It is, it, it is a very important preliminary practice for Vajrayana practice. So going for refuge and arousing bodhicitta. there's the first one. Mandala offering, second. Vajrasattva, purificatory meditation and guru yoga. On this there's no, there's no disagreement among the practice traditions. All, they all concur. And in particular, the supreme disciple of unexcelled, unexcelled mantra, this is Mantrayana, this is Vajrayana. So it's the Anuttara Yoga Tantra, highest yoga tantra. So the supreme disciple, the greatest disciple, the foremost disciple of Vajrayana, unexcelled Vajrayana practice, the lord of yoga, Milarepa, the great yogi, uh, and he meditated and taught. Again, I had to change this translation a lot. Milarepa meditated on and then taught. First of all, contemplate loving-kindness, translated here as love, which is fine, but it's, it's Maitri. He, he meditated on, this was his practice, and this is what he relayed to others. First of all, contemplate or cultivate loving-kindness, compassion and bodhicitta. So you start there. And then renunciation and reflect upon karma and its results, actions and their consequences. And death and impermanence. Death more specifically, the impermanence of your own life, the life of every living being. And impermanence more generally, that everything that is created vanishes. And that's it. He didn't say, you should exhort yourself to act. He just meditated and taught, first of all, and in that sequence. So there was his... So here's... You're looking for someone who, I mean, succeeded magnificently. Then we want to listen to those people. We want to listen to those people. Miller doesn't get any better than Milarepa. And then in his own words, he says, I say, well, in his own words... because So this was a summary of Milarepa's approach, how he, his own practice and what he taught to others... And then it says jiketu, jiketu, well, and it's, as he said, and this is a, then a direct quote, and I've had to change this a lot, sorry. Um, fearing, I, don't, I just don't think it's right, I destroyed fear. It's jik jik, means on continuity of fearing, fearing, jik jik, rather than, I won't go into details of it, but fearing the eight states devoid of leisure. When I, when I read this Eight Unfortunate States, I was just going, what is it? Is there are three lower realms, there are 18 hell realms, there's three realms of samsara. Well, I, I, couldn't, I, could, I couldn't get it. I didn't know what he's referring to, the Eight Unfortunate States. Because it's, it's not what it says. Mikomge, Mikombage. Mikomba is, anybody who's familiar with, with Lamrim, the Eight leisures and the Ten Endowments. right? the eight freedoms and the ten endowments, the ten opportunities. He's referring to the eight freedoms, but the absence of the eight freedoms. That's what he's referring to. Okay, That completely flummoxed me. So I had to see the Tibetan. Uh, and then, for those of you who have not been meditating on Lamrim or not aware of it, uh, this is classic Buddhism. You find it in you know all over Indian Buddhism and so on. But fearing these eight... They are unfortunate, but that's not what the word means. These states, these states, situations, contexts... Uh, that in which there's no leisure. Mi-komba means no leisure. no There's no time. And what are they? There's eight of them. So first, if you're born in any of the three lower realms, hell realm, preta, animal, you don't have any time. You don't have the leisure to practice Dharma. You're too busy suffering or being craving or you know, just don't understand. So there's three of them out of the eight. And then there are these devas in the formless realm. And they're just kind of like totally zoned out and they can stay in that state for like eons, I mean incredibly long time which means they're just inconceivably treading water going nowhere, but they can't practice dharma because their minds have been profoundly deactivated and they're just dwelling in these very, very abstract states states of samapati or meditative absorption. So, I mean it's kind of an, I guess kind of a nice place to hang out but it's really quite useless to stay there. So that's the fourth one. And then the fifth one is, um, in Tibetan, Lalo, or uh, being born in Yul, Yul, an outlying country. It's translated to barbarian. But a barbarian, a Lalo, is simply somebody who has no dharma, no dharma. So people with no dharma whatsoever. And it's not just Buddha dharma, there's all kinds of dharma. But people with no dharma, they're called Lalo, barbarians. And so when the Chinese communists invaded Tibet, In 1950s, and then the Cultural Revolution, the Genocide, and all of that. The Tibetans would commonly refer to them as the Lalo, the barbarians. The barbarians are coming, and they were. They just were. I mean, they're coming in, they're burning books, they're tearing tearing down temples, they're destroying a civilization, they're lining monks up by the thousands and just blowing them away with machine guns. I think the word barbarian is very, very appropriate. And I don't care what level of science and technology they have. This is a barbaric deed. And of course, our, my native Californians? Barbarian. When they were hunting down Native Americans as you know, like shooting rabbits. That's barbaric. To call them Christians in the same breath, that is obscene. You know. So barbarians are everywhere. They're my home state. Look around, you know. And so that's what he's referring to. People who have no dharma whatsoever. No dharma, no ethics. No ethics, you feel whatever you're doing is justified. That's barbarian. So that's the fifth one. And then holding wrong views, views that are out of accord with reality. It's debilitating. And I would say the most prominent one nowadays is materialism. It's debilitating. It's dehumanizing, demoralizing, and disempowering. And it gives you really no entry into authentic dharma. It's tragic. So holding inauthentic views, unrealistic views. And then living in a time when there are no Buddhas, no, even a historical records of buddhas not and you can't practice buddha dharma if you don't even have any indirect access to the buddhas and then finally it's kukpa literally means mute mute but then I knew a mute when I was in India he was a Sikh he was perfectly intelligent just couldn't talk and so he and I wrote notes back and forth and he was also a siddha <laughs> he had abilities which he demonstrated to me quite remarkable I saw them um, but he couldn't talk. I don't quite know why, but he couldn't talk, so he was mute. I don't think that he's referring to that. I think this mute is a person who is really mentally severely retarded and just doesn't have the ability to understand or to talk. Okay? Brain damage, it could be congenital, and so forth. Um, so that's referring to... You're a human being, but the defining characteristic or distinctive characteristic of human species is that defines and separates us from other primates, for example, Is in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, is in Tibetan Mashe Dungova. We're able to speak and we're able to understand meaning, speech, whether it's written, whether it's speech, and so forth. In other words, we're able to carry, as we're, in this text, is a perfect example of this. He's citing from the 12th century, citing from the 13th century, citing from century after century. He's drawing from the wisdom of generations, going right back to the time of the Buddha himself, Uh, well, that's because he has the ability to speak and to understand meaning. And then civilization, he can carry the wisdom of generations, of millennia, right? Chimpanzees don't do that. Dolphins don't do that. Animals don't do that. They can communicate. They have some language, some of them. But this, as we know, this is really, this is very distinctively human. And so if you're mentally so retarded that you don't have that ability, we're human, but you don't really get the advantage of being a human. And I've, know, I've known some people like that. Uh, of course, it's just very tragic. Because they, if you even taught them dharma, they can't understand it. You know? So, there's, so those, those eight situations are one in which you don't have the leisure, you don't have the freedom to practice dharma because of your context. Right? And so fearing that, he's looking to... He has good reason to fear. Right? He has killed 35 people. And he's looking ahead. He could die at any instant. Anybody can. And he said, okay, there, I've got that. That's, if, if that karma matures, that, of killing 35 people, if that matures, that's going to turn out really badly. But then that karma will, of course, be exhausted. And then I'll go someplace else. And I'll go someplace else. But as I'm going from one place to another, one embodiment to another, to another, to another, if I'm just roaming around in these eight modes of no leisure, he said, well, that, I fear that. Jik, jik. I'm fearing, I'm fearing. I think that's what he's saying here. So fearing this, I contemplated the disadvantages of impermanence and samsara. I don't think it's impermanence samsara. It's impermanence and samsara. I contemplated this, I strove in the Dharma, I applied myself to the Dharma of karmic cause and effect, really sought to understand it, It said, on a relative level, the most important teachings that Buddha ever gave was on actions and their consequences. So that at least while we're in samsara, we can find some happiness. I mean, it really is possible to find some happiness. It's fleeting, but nevertheless, better than misery or agony. But for that, we need to know what kind of actions give rise to what kind of effect within samsara. That's the most important knowledge we can have in the near term. And on an ultimate level, the most important dharma he taught was the teachings on emptiness, shunyata. So I strove in the dharma of karmic cause and effect and committed my inmost mind to the three jewels of refuge. That is, from existentially, I dedicated myself to the three jewels. So he's, this is narrative. This is first person autobiographical. This is how he went from a mass murderer to an enlightened being. Kind of important. And when my mind stream was trained, the, uh, the word trained can also be purified. I think purified might be a little bit better, but trained is not wrong. When my mind stream was trained or purified in the method of bodhicitta, I cut the continuum of, rather than obstacles, I would say obscurations, the afflictive and cognitive, I cut the continuum of obscurations that veil the very nature of Buddha mind or of awakening, and there are propensities there too. That is, there's the obscurations and there are also the propensities for. Anger is a mental affliction, an, 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 an afflictive obscuration. Anger is. Hatred, let's say, hatred. So if you're experiencing hatred in that moment, well, that, that's an obscuration. But even when you're sanguine, everybody's nice around you, everything's swell. You see, I, I have right now I have no hatred. I'm just not feeling hatred at all. But then if circumstances change... Could I suddenly be manifesting hatred? Yeah, that's because I have a propensity for hatred. So the p- p- propensities, you don't see it. But all you have to do is, there's the seed, all you have to do is germinate it, and wham, you have a great big poisonous plant of hatred, craving, arrogance, and so on. So he's saying, I cut the continuum of obscurations, and the, and the propensities of obscurations realized all all arising appearances as its, its illusions, its guma. Guma means illusion, not deceptive. Zumba means deceptive. But Guma just flat out, it's... it's it, Guma Ken is an illusionist. Like a David Copperfield, or, you know, it's an illusion. I, I don't know why I translate it any other way. I realize all appearances, all, appearing, all arising appearances as illusions. That is, they appear in a manner that is contrary to the way they in fact exist. That's what's meant by Illusion. And so in that regard, they are deceptive, but the word means illusion, and had no fear of the three lower realms. So that's a big thing. That's something really big. When you have a direct realization of emptiness, you'll never, ever possibly be born in the lower realms again. So he's claiming, yeah, he did that. So he continues. Milarepa also says, so he's, and here, when, when he's quoting him, and he does it repeatedly, you can see there is a real rationale for saying that what, that what, what the pension Rinpoche, Rinpoche wrote, wrote here in the root text and the commentary with so many citations we're going to see also from Gambopa another great Kacupa that he is really weaving together you know the the Yalopa and then the caute uh, oral transmissions or lineages so either translation is good but there's good grounds for saying agreeing with his holiness which might be a kind of safe thing to do uh, that this is in fact the union of the Gelug and Gaigyut tradition on Mahamudra. Here's another one from Melarepa who says If you do not think purely on the causes and effects of virtuous and non virtuous actions, you'll not be able to bear the sufferings of the lower realms. So attend with care to the very subtle fruition of deeds and seek to retain this. Again, there's just the translation is not correct. So seek to attend with care to the very subtle fruition of deeds and seek to retain this with conscientiousness and mindfulness. It's bhagyu. It's temba and temba dan bhagyu. Bhagyu is conscientiousness. And mindfulness, as you know, perfectly well. So he's really saying with conscientiousness, with conscientiousness and mindfulness, attend with care to the... with care to the very subtle fruition of deeds that is look in detail, really examine closely the nation of actions and the consequences, the actions the seeds and then the fully ripening consequences as the karma matures. And so right there I think I'll just make a, a, a suggestion and that is, if you go back to naked awareness you'll feel you'll find, that in this addendum, because he's covered the whole path already, to spare that in mind, he's covered all the essentials already there and you know the core of it was translated into Spacious Path of Freedom. And now he's adding these very significant addenda kind of enriching what he already taught. Um, and the next two chapters are first narratives on actions and the consequences and karma, and then there's more of a critical analysis, a detailed analysis of the laws, the patterns, the regularities of actions and their cause and their effects. And so, I'm not going to go through that, that would probably take a week right there, and we have only eight, and now we have seven. And so what I would encourage, though, uh, if you'd like to really flesh this out, you know, bring more substance to this, more detail, especially for those, for those who have not studied this before, what I would suggest, you know, starting today, tomorrow, then read through those chapters. Read through them. Reflect upon them. Uh, qualms, if you're, if you're new to this, qualms, uncertainties are bound to arise, and... Glenn is very knowledgeable, so I would imagine every question you have very likely Glenn can answer them. He studied this at length. Um, But also there's this point, just just very briefly. And that is, when you go to this level, the the intricacies of karma, the details of karma, actions, somebody did this in a lifetime and then later this happened, and these are the patterns, these are the regularities, the laws of karma. Um, When we go into the details of them, this is a realm that in, in Buddhist epistemology is called very concealed. Very concealed. And that is, so just briefly here, but it's, it's relevant to contextualize this. And that is, there are different dimensions of reality corresponding, always tied in with epistemology, the way of knowing. And there's a whole realm of reality that is evident. When I look over it, at Mary Kay's shirt, I, I can see the color. I don't infer it, I don't have to believe it. I, I see it. And so there are things that are evident to pratyaksha, direct perception. I can I, I can know with mental perception, right now whether my mind is afflictive, afflicted, whether it's kind of caught up in anger or resentment or what have you. I, I can tell. I can watch. It's there. I can see it. I don't have to infer it from my behavior. I don't need to know anything about the brain at all. I just watch, you know. And so we can know what we can know thoughts. We can know whether the mind is lax or whether it's or whether it's agitated. This is perception. We look, look. Develop the ability to look and see. And so it's mental, which is often overlooked in academic psychology. When I took a whole course on it with a 500-page textbook, they never even mentioned the word mental perception or the fact that we could do it. I just found that astonishing. But moving on, we have six modes of perception. So that which can be directly perceived, that's evident. Now, of course, if you've developed you know, some special modes of knowing by way of shamatha, then the, the scope Of what is directly perceivable expands. So you may directly perceive memories from past lives. It's not inferring it, it's just, I could remember being 15 in this year, in this lifetime, and, and now I remember. I remember exactly who I was and who my companions were and what I did and how I died and so forth. You're perceiving that, right? And so perception can start to expand. That's really the nature of the practice. So there's that dimension. And then there's a dimension of reality that can only be inferred. So, for frankly, the the the, Bose, the Higgs boson, the big deal. Remember from the, the Large Hadron Super Collider, it had been predicted way back in 1968, something like that, by Higgs, and brilliant, you know, brilliant theorizing. But they didn't have any empirical evidence. And now, with this incredible technology, which, for which I have only admiration, they came up with data. Now, did they see the Higgs boson? It's like, oh, look, there it is. No, it never happens. Nobody's seeing exoplanets, planets around other stars. Nobody's seeing them; they're way too tiny. Even with the biggest telescope, can't see them. They infer them, and it's really sharp inference. So I take them seriously. This is brilliant science: the existence of exoplanets around stars elsewhere in our galaxy. They can't see them, but with the very great sophistication of their measurements, their mathematics, and so forth, they're making strong inferences. Yes, there, there's a planet, and they even describe it to some extent. Uh, by you know, some of the planets around other stars. And likewise, for the whole array of elementary particles, you never see them. Nobody ever sees them. But based upon really, really good science, they infer them. So that those elementary particles and exoplanets, for example, um, black holes, another example, you never see them, they suck in all the light. But you can infer them. And so there's a whole dimension in science where that's dimension of reality, but for the, for the time being at least, we can't can know them. They're not just guessing, this this is really good science, but you can know them only by way of inference. Uh, There are many truths in mathematics, many, many discoveries in mathematics. It's inference, you're not seeing it. Well, likewise in Buddhism. There are many many aspects of reality which, if you're an ordinary sentient being, you can know them, but only by means of cogent inference. Such as, such as, does consciousness emerge from the brain? Well, you can investigate that. And if you investigate it deeply enough, you can come by that with a very strong inference. No way. No way. Not possible. The minds that we have are emerging from a subtle continuum of consciousness. It makes eminently more sense. The empirical evidence is extremely strong. So even if you haven't seen your own past lives, you may, based on very rigorous empirical evidence, I say just as, as rigorous as elementary particle physics and astronomy. I, I do believe that then if one is investigated sufficiently, then you may draw a strong inference. Right? Now, for myself, so now I'll take myself. I'm not an astronomer. I studied physics, but I'm not even in that category. I read of people at MIT, you know, the, the astronomers at MIT and you know, other great universities, and I read in, that in their peer-reviewed journals, they have claimed that they have seen such and such exoplanets, or I read in the news, as many people did. Oh, In Switzerland, they've discovered, in fact, there's very strong compelling evidence to support the hypothesis of the Higgs boson. So, I've studied physics, I do have some higher education, so I'm not just, you know, completely ignorant, and I have some idea what goes on in peer-reviewed journals. I mean, it's a tough thing to do, to get your article published in one of these top-notch scientific journals. I know something about that. I've actually published in some of them, right? So I know it. So... I would say, I think it's probably true, that I, if you ask me, Alan, do you, know, do you know whether scientists have found any exoplanets or not? If somebody just asked me, bumped in the street, Alan, do you know whether scientists have discovered exoplanets? I say, yeah, I, I do know. Yeah, I do. How do you know? Well, I read it in the major media, and they're citing peer-reviewed journals, journal, journals in, in, journal articles, and it's from MIT, it's from Cambridge, it's from Caltech. Those words mean a lot to me and therefore this is not blind faith, it's not simply belief, I would say, yeah, I, I know, yeah, they, they've discovered it. I mean, there's very, very strong grounds for that assertion. The Higgs boson and so forth. I know, but I know based on authority. It's more than merely believing. It's harder than mere believing. You have to, you have to study something. You have to know something. You have to know that MIT is not a silly place where people just go around you know, dropping acid. They may do that too, but it's not the primary thing they do. <laughs> you, know. you, need to know what, you need to know why these people have credibility. And if you do, then you can say in this fairly lightweight way, yes, I know scientists have discovered exoplanets. And yes, I know they've discovered a whole range of elementary particles. Yes, I know they've discovered the speed of light is 186,000 miles per second. But I haven't seen it, and I don't have the inference. But I would say, yeah, do I know the speed of light? Yeah, 186,000 miles per second. Yeah, I know. I knew that a long time ago. But I know it because, you know, I study physics, but I don't have the cogent inference. So I'm drawing a strong parallel here. To my mind, it's a strong parallel. There are kembos and geishis who've studied for 20 years, 30 years. And I've had both sides of the fence. I've had that type of training, and I have a PhD from Stanford. I know something here. And I know a lot of scientists. And I know the kind of training they went through. Rigor, rigor. I mean, they're both extremely demanding. Neither one is simply indoctrination. It is demanding. Geshe Rabdin's training. I, I was the first one who wrote about what it means to become a geshe. I asked him for his life story. He gave it to me. I was blown away. I thought, my goodness, I've never had an education like that. That is awesome. Amazing. And so I developed respect. you know, And then I got some, some of that training myself from him. And so what I'm getting at here, maybe too long-winded, it's, when it comes to karma, is often treated, I hear it all the time, mumbo-jumbo. Mumbo-jumbo. People who are advocating secular Buddhism, or we found the essence of all Buddhist practice, it's just being basically mindful, be here now, that's the essence of it. Without all that mumbo-jumbo, you know, like karma. The, the casualness with which they scoff at a whole civilization, I find quite remarkable. In the Buddhist tradition, they say this is one of its most important insights on the night of his enlightenment, he claimed it. It's been verified many, many times. So, the point here is not that I'm now really articulate, I'm making it strong, now believe it, believe it, believe it. I'm saying that if one studies enough, sufficiently, like a Yishirabdhan, like a Yishinwantaikya, like its Holiness Dalai Lama, when it comes to these subtleties, for most people it's simply a matter of belief. But for these great adepts, it may be knowledge by authority. For the greater adepts, it may be knowledge by inference. By the highly realized adepts, it's direct perception. Right. So when you read it, qualms arise, don't, don't worry about that. Don't think, oh, I'm, I'm having uncertainty. Relax, have uncertainty. Nobody's asking you to believe. You believe, you don't believe. But if you'd like to get clarity, what is it that you may or may not believe? Then ask Glenn. You know. <laughs> Get yes, some clarity of what's actually being said, because there's a lot. There is a lot of mumbo jumbo about karma in India. There's a lot of mumbo jumbo about karma that it's destiny. What can I do? It's my karma. You know, that's mumbo jumbo. You know, and so there are a lot of idiotic ideas about karma, and then there are ideas, theories, insights that are anything but. But then you have to study carefully. So here's two chapters that will give you some, some, some impression. Of why Milarepa, this incredible yogi, is really emphasizing this. Okay? So let's read just a little bit more. Again, Milarepa. And I can't have to, I have to retranslate this chapter, this, this verse. If you do not see the, it's Duyun, yundan, Duyunen in Tibetan, Duyun. That's a contraction of Dubeyunden. And that's the contraction of durkamgi yunden, And so it's the attractions, or the allures, or the desirable things, of the desire realm. That's what it's referring to. It's not just in things we desire. I desire to achieve enlightenment. That's not this at all, not even remotely. I desire to experience great compassion. It's not this even remotely. This is a misleading translation. So it needs to be repaired. That's what I'm here for. So if we do not see the attractions of the desire realm as faulty, defective, misleading, problematic, unsatisfying, don't count on them, don't bet your life on them, it's not going to turn out well. Hedonia. If you do not see hedonia as being really defective. If you do not reverse clinging from within... You will not be freed from samsara's prison. Full stop. So seek to rely on what count so, so try to resort to the antidotes to its source. With a mind that knows all things as illusions. So try to resort to the antidotes. It's kunjung, kunjung ki nyembo. Kunjung is the second noble truth. The source, the root of samsara. And Yembo is the antidote. The root of samsara is karma and klesha. What's the antidote? Well, the three, three higher trainings, ethics, samadhi, and wisdom, that'd be a good start. Okay. So resort to the antidotes to its source, the source of samsara, the source of suffering, the second noble truth. Resort to the antidotes. That's the fourth noble truth. The fourth noble truth antidotes the, th- the second noble truth, which gives rise to the third noble truth. And so resort, so try to resort to the antidotes that which overcomes the origin, the source of suffering, with a mind that knows all things as illusions, that ceases reifying all phenomena as being inherently existent. And he also says, if you do not repay the kindness shown you by parents and beings of the six realms, all of whom have been our parents in past life, you incur, if you do not repay the kindness, if you do not bear in mind as you're applying yourself to Dharma practice, if you do not have it in mind that by my devoting myself to Dharma, proceeding along the path to enlightenment, in so doing, by progressing along the path, eventually coming to the culmination of the path, by so doing, may I repay the kindness of all sentient beings who cared for me in past lives throughout the Six Realms. If you don't have that mindset of joyfully wishing to repay the kindness of others, then you incur the fault of straying into the Hinayana. Then you fall back into practicing see, just for your own well-being. Deva just makes it so practical. I can't remember which chapter it is, but it's the guided bodhisattva way of life. And he says, when you're just walking along, here it is, I mean, it's right here. We're just, just walking along, and you see people in their cars driving this way, or somebody just walking along, and there's somebody, there's somebody. He says, when, you, when people just come into your field of vision, then let your first thought be, Independence, of, uh, independence upon an individual like this, I'm able to practice dharma. So an immediately a sense of, I'm already indebted to you. As far as I know, none of you are growing your own vegetables here. Or your wheat. You're not grinding your wheat. You're not baking the bread. You're doing nothing at all. You're just hanging out and eating <laughs> a bunch of mouths, and producing a lot of poop and pee. You know that's what, that's what we're doing here. So the fact that we can be so useless for eight weeks is only because of the kindness, number one, of the people who are directly hosting us here. If they just went on strike, how do you think that's going to work out? Julia, Julia, where are you? Where's my lunch? (laughs) She just brings it to me. I don't even have to walk up there to to the castle. So the fact that we can practice Dharma, how many of you walked from home to here? Maybe Anna, but not many of you could walk It's a long swim from California. How do you even get here? Somebody else made an airplane. I bet it wasn't you. And you didn't get pilot training. You didn't fly it. And so forth. You just start, you know, opening it up and you say, oh my goodness. How many thousands of beings, how many thousands of human beings were needed for me to be able to be here for these eight weeks? I'm not naked, happily for you. (laughs) You know, I'm clothed. I didn't make my clothes. You know, I didn't even wash my clothes. Somebody else to wash my clothes. I'd be kind of be stinky by now. But also the shower, I didn't make that, and I would definitely be stinky without the shower, and so forth. There's many ways this could turn out badly. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. <laughs> you know, but happily somebody got you know a shower and I even have hot water. That's not always been true in my life. Hot water, you just turn that thing. Hot water comes out. It's so cool. I don't know how that hot water got hot, but I'm really glad it is, because I didn't make the heater. So, you know, just, you just kind of just watch the dominoes fall. And it's actually not unrealistic to think, as you just see people. If it's not you, it's your cousin, it's your brother, it's somebody you know. that Without you, I, I couldn't be here. So it's that sense of happy indebtedness. It's not a burden of indebtedness. It's a happy sense of wishing to repay the kindness of others. So, if you don't have that, then you'll just fall back into kind of default mode of practicing, because you want to be happy. You want to have less stress. You want to be blah blah blah. Therefore, you should seek with you should with great benevolence seek training in bodhicitta. In this and other statements, Milarepa speaks according to the stages of the path system. So this is you now this is a great galupa, a great galupa scholar and adept, panchenamaching, writing this, and he's writing this. I, frankly, I think he's really writing this primarily for galupas. Because the concubus have their own tradition. They don't really need some galupa horning in and telling you, know, how you I'll tell you how to merge our tradition with yours. He's you saying, thanks, we're, we're set. I, I'm good. <laughs> you know, I'm okay. <laughs> you know, if you, why don't you kind go back to your flock? And, <laughs> I think so, really. I don't know any concubus that read this. You know, unless there's some here now. <laughs> could be. You know. And so he's, he's, he's doing something that had never done, been done before, as far as we know. Roger Jackson has done some very good scholarly historical research here. This is the first time a Galupa ever wrote down anything about Mahamudra, you know. And the really stiff, rigid, close-minded Galupa say, oh, that's, you know, those are those fluffy-headed kagyupas. They don't study. They're illogical, they just sit, watching their minds. They don't know much. So a lot of them (laughs) wouldn't touch it. They say, you know, the real rigid ones, and there are rigid people everywhere. If if Tsongkhapa didn't teach, it can't be very important. You know, it's very common. Christians, if it's not in the Bible, who cares? And so forth. If it's not in science, it doesn't exist. If scientists can't measure, it doesn't exist. It's the same mentality, exactly. Close-minded, my way is the only way. And so he's reassuring his fellow galupas, who are open-minded enough to read him, but you don't have to be that open-minded to read him, because he's, he's a monument. He's one of the great ones. That's just not questioned. In the galupa tradition, this man's great. And so, okay, well, we can read him. He's okay. We know he's okay. And so he's speaking, I think, to his fellow galupas and say, look, your core practice is lamrim. We know that for good reason. Tsongkhapa wrote multiple lamrims. And the Dalai Lama teaches it all the time. The lamrim is a sequence of discursive meditations. Developed renunciation, bodhicitta, shamatha, realization of emptiness. It's classic, classic. And so he's simply saying, kind of reassuring, I think, his fellow galupas, that in these verses, Milarepa just singing spontaneously from his own realization. They're called Nyamgur, the songs of experience. He's just singing this spontaneously, coming from his own Buddha nature. But what he's singing here, of course, exactly with the stages of the Lam Rim, which is the classic Galupa practice, but which is also embraced. You find very similar in the Lam Day system of Sakya, the words of the uh, Thapa the, the, the Jewel ornament liberation by Gambopa is in the Kaiku tradition. He's simply saying, you know, relax, you know, is relax. I was citing Milarepa, but he's, co- he's kosher, definitely kosher. His teachings are <laughs> in accordance and exactly with what you already believe and are embracing. So relax. So there it is. So this is something of a union. It is indeed something of a union of the kagyu and the Galupa traditions. Most important, though, for us who are not living in the Tibetan culture, to my mind, it's just really good dharma. And it is going right in the direction... Uh, for which I know at least one person here, and I'm sure many others, people who really want to understand the nature of mind. And not just about the brain. That's another, another area of interest, and it's definitely related to the mind. But you can be a brilliant brain scientist and really know not much about the mind at all. And you can be a brilliant behaviorist and not know much about the mind either. You may, but no guarantee. But if you really want to know the nature of the mind, then... Treat it like a brain scientist treats the brain. (laughs) And look at it real carefully. And if what you're really interested in behavior, look at behavior really carefully. If what you're really interested in is mind. Come on, it's common sense here. Look at the mind really carefully. This is a strategy. We're looking at the mind really carefully. Making discoveries that are rigorous, sophisticated, and replicable. Give rise to a consensual body of knowledge by people who are sufficiently trained. And so this is the preparation for that. You'll see that ethics is built in Benevolence, kindness, compassion, bodhicitta is built in. These are not optional. They're not little like adornments to the path. They're actually crucial. So there we are. So we'll continue. Continue tomorrow. Good. Enjoy your evening.